the decentralization of Bitcoin, if there was a single guy in charge of this project, even if he was the saint of all saints, there would be someone to target, to vilify, to denigrate, to accuse of greed, to represent as a threat. So there'd always be this risk, right, that this guy could get singled out. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders who are rewriting the rules of sales and success. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Welcome back to the Selling with Love podcast. And I want to introduce the next guest in a different way because we're going to have a very special episode. It's been one of my funnest conversations I've had when it comes to a topic that's actually a little outside of our usual topics. We spoke about money, the understanding of money, the history of money, and what's going on with the world of money, whether that's fiat currency, gold, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. What does it mean? Why is it important? And we're having this conversation because for those who are familiar with Selling with Love concept, we talk about how selling is an energy exchange between conscious beings. And one of those forms of energy that gets exchanged is money. And I speak about money as a concept of stored energy. But what I loved about what we discussed today is we've unpacked really what is money and why it's so important for you to unpack that knowledge because then you start understanding how the world works better and it might help you make a bit more sales, but I think it'll help you to live a life with a lot more freedom and a lot more understanding of how it works. I bring Robert Breedlove. He is the host of What Is Money podcast. He has a YouTube channel as well, and he speaks with people and discusses this topic with over 350 guests over the years where he tries to unpack what is money. In this episode, we're going to speak to the best of our abilities on how money works in the world, why we should be aware of this, what are the new technologies that have emerged, particularly Bitcoin, but not in a fashion of understanding the money opportunity. We're not even talking about anybody needing to purchase anything. We're talking about how do we understand its essence and why it actually directly ties to the way we want to live our lives with abundance and freedom. So please enjoy this episode. We're going to kick it off with a story from Robert as to why he became this man who worked as a C-suite and finance and operations went on and became a hedge fund trader for some of these new types of currencies and now is the host of the What Is Money podcast, where we're going to spend our time today to unpack what money is. Let's get started. Yeah, so I guess I would first give a little bit of background. I have a master's degree in accounting and finance. And when I first came out of school, I worked in public accounting for a while. I was focused on tax strategies for high net worth individuals and investment vehicles for the most part. And then quickly realized that was not going to be the right path for me. So I went into private industry, serving mostly in a CFO capacity. Also did some COO work as well, mostly focused in the technology sector, specifically software. And I eventually decided I did not want to work for anyone else. So I decided I was going to work for myself. This was in late 2016, early 2017. And so I started my business, which was Really, at the time, I just had one CFO consulting client. So I just kind of struck out on my own with one client. And it was, at the time, kind of a controversial decision. Like I shared the pros and cons with my family and friends. Like, here's the two options I'm facing. I had a really good job, and they were trying to bring me further up, let's say. It was a lot of money on the table, big opportunity, board seat, all that. 
And I ended up turning that down to just go and start this business with one consulting client. So really kind of following my heart in that decision. But in retrospect, I'm really glad I did because it gave me the bandwidth to become curious again. I've always been an avid reader, very curious person. And at the time, late 16, early 17, crypto was a very big phenomenon. And so I had the bandwidth and the curiosity as a result of making that move to start to study the nature of this technology. And long story short, I realized it was a big deal. I started making allocations into the top market cap weighted crypto assets. And then as a result of that, in 2017, the crypto market was up 1800% in one year. So I don't know if you remember that, but it was a very fever pitch year for crypto. And so I had everyone that I knew that was aware that I was studying this stuff asking me, you know, what is it? How do we get involved, et cetera? And so somewhat organically, I just got into the hedge fund business and started managing other people's money, investing in these assets. And to do that investment work properly, you have to do valuation analyses on these individual assets. So you have to study their fundamentals, you know, who are the teams, what is the technology, what is the market space, et cetera. And throughout that process, after studying dozens and dozens of these assets, I realized that my scope of interest was becoming much more narrowly focused on Bitcoin and Bitcoin alone. And there's a longer story behind that, but I guess the short answer would be that you hear this word thrown around a lot, decentralized this, decentralized that. And the truth of the matter, as I see it today, is that Bitcoin is the only decentralized crypto asset. Everything else suffers from some degree of centralization and is therefore not what it represents itself to be per se. So as my views started to change, obviously my portfolio allocation started to change as well, became much more focused on Bitcoin and creating income denominated in Bitcoin, which is to say you're trying to actually outperform the dollar price of Bitcoin or generate Bitcoin alpha, which is quite difficult to do. And I continued doing that for four years. And in that process, I began to go down what many people in Bitcoin circles call the Bitcoin rabbit hole. The Bitcoin rabbit hole really is just studying the nature, history, and philosophy of money. What is money, right? Trying to understand what is the nature of this very fundamental technology or social institution that we all take for granted. And in doing that, suffice it to say, my worldview was blown apart. I started to see through the illusion that is modern fiat money. I had some background in this from reading years earlier before getting into Bitcoin. I read The Creature from Jekyll Island, which goes into the nature of central banking and the nature of money. So I knew money was broken, but I didn't understand how Bitcoin fixed that and so much more before this period of time. And so I did that for a number of years, and then I eventually... Well, through that process, the writing I was publishing was becoming popular. Initially, it was investment reports, valuation analyses. Then I started publishing long-form essays on the history, the nature of money. People started to invite me on their podcast to talk about what I had written. Those podcast appearances were becoming very popular. My Twitter was blowing up throughout this time. And so eventually, I just capitulated to the bandwagon and decided I would start my own podcast. And that was in late 2020. I really thought it was just going to be kind of a passion of love, you know, side project type thing. And <laughs> our first series with billionaire Michael Saylor immediately became one of the most popular pieces of Bitcoin content on the internet and still is today. So 
I completely shifted gears to focus exclusively on the podcast. And now I spend most of my days reading, writing, and talking about these subjects and really could not be more grateful because at heart, I am a nerd. And so now I get to be a nerd professionally and it's a lot of fun. Well, bless the internet for enabling these passions to allow us to distribute some very, very relevant information. And, you know, it kind of coincides at the right timing, right? Like it sounds like all the technologies have allowed us to be able to communicate with people from around the world. And then this whole cryptocurrency evolution, especially with the, the birth of the Bitcoin, the fact that we're aware of it, we can study it, we can share information about it. It doesn't need to be distributed through a central kind of channel of information. We're all becoming curious about it. We all are talking about it and we feel like something's broken. We could always feel that discomfort with money that something doesn't seem to be right. And I feel like it's great that we're actually being able to have these conversations directly peer to peer and distribute it worldwide as something that's going on now. So I'd be curious to know when you're investigating this, like if we're starting this at like base one, what are some of the biggest things that you would advise people to at least get to be more familiar about money that you find if they are completely unaware right now, they will get blindsided or it could be something that, you know, they would never understand if they wouldn't understand the fundamental principles here? It's a great question. I guess I would first like to say there are many people that talk about crypto or cryptocurrencies or crypto assets as if it's this one homogenous glob of innovation. And there's a deep fallacy there that, you know, Bitcoin is the same thing as Ethereum, is the same thing as Dogecoin, etc. And to be very clear, there are two distinct hemispheres to this universe. There's Bitcoin and there's everything else. In Bitcoin circles, we say there's Bitcoin and there are shit coins. And now that term is not necessarily derogatory. I actually think it's somewhat accurate because, again, the nature of Bitcoin, the way that it emerged was done in such an idiosyncratic way that there was an organic sequence of events that led to this internet protocol that we call Bitcoin ossifying such that no one can change it. And this is the real magic of Bitcoin, that there's no individual, no company, no foundation that can pass any political or policy decision that can change the core consensus protocol of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is, you know, 21 million Bitcoin, a block every 10 minutes. These things are as probabilistically certain as the rising and setting sun. And that may sound crazy, and it is indeed quite the crazy innovation, but this is the magical property of Bitcoin that is decentralized in a pure sense, that there's no central authority that can do anything about it to change its rules. That is not the case with any other so-called crypto asset or cryptocurrency or shitcoin. All of them have some degree of centralization and their rules can be changed. And therefore, to the extent they represent themselves to be a decentralized solution to anything, they are misleading at best. So my advice is anyone new to this space, the typical path is this. You're interested in Bitcoin. You then get distracted by all these shiny object shitcoins. And then over time, as you continue to study Bitcoin and crypto assets, you will learn that Bitcoin is something fundamentally different. This is, it's like an extension of the internet itself, whereas all other shitcoins are more like liquid venture capital companies that are subjected to little, if any, due diligence. So I would say that cryptocurrencies or shitcoins are at best 
gambling devices, and at worst, they're outright scams. And indeed, I would say 95 plus percent of these things have proven over the past 14 years to be outright scams. So my very straightforward advice is to just study Bitcoin. Just put your energy and your focus on Bitcoin. That will quickly take you into the rabbit hole of what is money, because when you ask the question, what is Bitcoin? The answer is, well, Bitcoin is a new form of money. So the natural extension to that line of inquiry is, well, what is money? That, as you mentioned at the top of the show, is the namesake of my podcast. And we've spent over 350 episodes at this point, probably 500 some odd hours in content trying to answer that question. It's a very deep philosophical question. My show is not a finance podcast. It's not an investing podcast. It really is a philosophy podcast. Like we talk about history. We talk about physics, technology, anthropology, energy, psychology, sociology, the history of warfare, and how money and the, the character of money has changed over time and how the changing character of money changes the shape of civilization itself. So I think that would be my strong advice. There's nothing prescriptive here. I wouldn't even say buy Bitcoin. It certainly helps, I think, when you have some skin in the game. Where your money goes, your mind tends to follow. I know for me, once I bought a little bit of Bitcoin, I was very assiduous in my studies. Like, what is this thing that I own? I need to understand it. Whatever you own, hopefully you understand. Otherwise, you're not going to own it well or own it long. So that's my advice, right? It's not to buy Bitcoin per se. It's just to study Bitcoin and by extension, study the nature of money itself. I know that you mentioned how there's no true decentralization for any other cryptocurrencies, but then at the same time, every fiat currency is by nature centralized. Are we saying that there's something inherently bad with the centralization of a currency? Yes, absolutely. And fiat currency would be an extreme example, right? So if you consider that, and there's many ways to quantify decentralization, but two ends of the spectrum we could look at would be, say, Bitcoin on one end of the spectrum and a fiat currency like the US dollar on the other. Now, Bitcoin is this distributed network of nodes, and each node is choosing which rule set is best for it to run under. And the consensus that those nodes reach by each node selecting in its own individual self-interest is Bitcoin, right? It's an emergent social consensus, right? You can think about it like a very pure democratic mechanism in a way. On the other end of the spectrum, you could look at a fiat currency like the US dollar, and it is literally a single node database. There's one node. There's an SQL database maintained inside the Federal Reserve. They can update the database however they please, Right? They can award themselves new dollars. Print money is the colloquial term most people use. You also hear terms like quantitative easing, increasing the debt ceiling, deficit spending, government borrowing. These are all the same thing. This is an organization that can print money out of thin air and then externalize the cost of that dilution onto the productive market, which is you and I and everyone that works for money. So there's a single organization called the central bank that does not perform any work whatsoever to produce new dollars, whereas every other organization in the private market has to work to produce dollars or to earn dollars, let's say. That is a fundamental asymmetry, right? And that asymmetry is only possible because of the legal monopoly that protects the central bank. 
So to demystify this a little bit, I've put this into kind of a nutshell statement that's been very popular, and it's just a few words. Inflation is legal counterfeiting. Counterfeiting is criminal inflation. They are economically identical. They are only legally, there's only a legal distinction between the two. There is no economic difference whatsoever. So, you know, what George Floyd, right? He was using a counterfeit $20 bill, counterfeit, that he or someone else produced outside of the Federal Reserve. And that was one of his original crimes. That's the same activity that the Federal Reserve does by the trillion, right? Federal Reserve has increased the money supply by $8 trillion for the past three years, at least. There's no difference between those two things. There's just an in-group and an out-group. So it's a criminal enterprise. It's a legally enforced injustice, let's say. And so when we talk about the nature of centralization, that's the problem with it. You get a two-tier system where one group can surreptitiously tax another group through the printing of money. And then that group that's printing the money and doing the taxing has all of this plausible deniability because people don't understand the nature of money. So when prices go up, as we've seen them go up in the past three years after they printed eight plus trillion dollars, surprise, surprise. If you go and read mainstream media headlines today, you'll see things like, well, prices have risen because Putin started a war. Prices have risen because supply chains have been disrupted. Prices have risen because Beyonce had a concert. That's not a joke, by the way. That's a real headline. They blamed Beyonce for inflation. I know it's not a joke. It was Taylor Swift a couple weeks ago or something. (laughs) Taylor Swift, yes. So the mainstream media mechanism, which is controlled and owned by the central banking shareholders, is a very pernicious problem because they're using this purchasing power that's being stolen through inflation, through the counterfeiting of currency, they can use it to fund these psyops and mainstream media and blame the price increases on everyone else, anyone else. You'll never see a mainstream media article saying, hey, the Fed printed $8 trillion and increased the money supply 40 to 50% over the past three years. Maybe that has something to do with prices going up. You'll never see that. And it's just, it's so blatantly obvious if you spend just a few minutes studying how this economic system works, yet most people don't do the work and they just sort of take the lies at face value. So I guess the short answer to your question is, yeah, centralization is inherently evil, right? You're creating rules for thee and not for me, right? If the idea of Western civilization is that we are to all be equal in the eyes of the law, then this is a fundamental violation of law itself. It's a legally enforced injustice. And fortunately, People are waking up, right? You see the lead candidate for uh, prime minister in Argentina today is now saying this very thing. He's running on a platform of central banking as a scam. As prime minister, the first thing I will do is dismantle the central bank. We see candidates in the U.S. like RFK talking about backing U.S. notes and U.S. bonds with gold, Bitcoin, and a basket of other commodities, saying things like, you know, global warfare is a function of fiat currency, When the government war machine can print money, it's no longer confined to the wealth of its own war chest, right? It doesn't have a limited balance sheet. It can now tap into the savings of society by printing currency and diluting savers. Everyone that uses the currency, it can steal from them to wage much larger and much more devastating wars. 
This is why World War I and World War II were so severe in terms of their scale, scope, and duration, because these countries had access to a printing press. So the banality of evil that is related to the centralization of money runs very deep. You get deception, you get global warfare, and you get this two-tier economic and political system that is, I would say, equivalent to a modern form of serfdom. Damn. Nothing you say is surprising. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) you're reiterating it, but like, it's how it feels. And it seems like it's happening, but we choose to ignore it because I feel like the confrontation of that reality is way uncomfortable. It's a bitter pill to swallow. I'm curious to know if there's been attempts in the past to have something that mildly resembles Bitcoin or any form of decentralized currency. And I would assume if there did, they fail. But have we ever tried this before? Well, you could argue that gold is a decentralized money, right? It emerged on the free market. There's no one that controls it centrally. It has a number of drawbacks, in particular, its physicality. You can't perform very small transactions in gold. If you're going to buy a cup of coffee, you need gold dust, right? That's pretty impractical to carry around and account for. It doesn't move easily across space. So if you're going to transact with someone in another country or even just a few miles away, there's a large security cost to move that gold. There's a large risk of it being seized. Really, because it's physical, it kind of invites political coercion or even violence. Because if I can find you and kill you and take your gold, well, then I'm all the better off. As good of a money as it was, its physicality prevented it from being really good money. And so, again, back to centralization, what did we do to overcome this shortcoming? Well, we centralized all the custody of gold into a single place. We put a bank note on top of it, right? So this piece of paper is redeemable for gold. And that gave gold this dematerialized form that made it much more transactable, right? We can move paper across space or electronic abstractions of that paper, you know, through wire transfers, Venmo, et cetera, much more easily than we can move physical gold. The problem, of course, is that you now need to trust the custodian of that gold not to overissue the paper, which no human in the history of the world has ever succeeded in doing. There have been private banks that have operated honestly for a period of time, but eventually they become corrupt. Either the bank operators themselves become corrupt and they start running what's called a fractional reserve, which means they issue more paper than their gold reserves can justify, or they come under political pressure from the government. A government goes to war, runs out of money, and goes. All, there's a big stash of private gold being held at this bank over here. Let's just pass a law that says they need to loan that to us at a certain interest rate or even seize it. Right In 1933 in the U.S., we had what's called Executive Order 6102, where private gold ownership was outlawed and seized. And I think the threat of imprisonment was 10 years or a fine of like $25,000, which at the time was a lot of money. So there have been attempts. There was also an attempt in Britain at one point, and I can't recall the name of this law. I think it was in the 16 or 1700s. But they had been through a number of bouts of currency printing and subsequent inflation and gone through this kind of boom and bust cycle. And at one point, a piece of legislation was passing. All right, this is the last issuance of currency we will ever do. It's 15,000 units of maybe they were pounds. It may have been a different currency. And from this point forward, 
this government will never print another unit of currency ever again. And it was just a few months later in another economic crisis where that law was overturned, right? And they started to print money again. So there's this irresistible temptation for humans to want to print money. Therefore, the thing that was hardest to produce, gold, right? This is a monetary metal that is so scarce, they say the global supply can fit into two Olympic-sized swimming pools. Its supply only increases about 2% per year on average over the past several hundred years. And because its supply increases so slowly and predictably, it's proven to be an exceptional store of value asset, right? You know whatever economic energy you store inside of gold, you're not going to get diluted any more than 2% a year. But we had the problems of centralization related to gold, and we've had these other attempts where man has tried to create a fixed supply asset or a money that nobody can print. But finally, with the advent of Bitcoin, we have created something that is truly decentralized. That's the world's first provably fixed supply asset. It's been operating for over 14 years now, and it's the most secure computing network in human history. And it's performed exactly what it said it would do, which is to push out a new block of transactions every 10 minutes and to adhere to a strict supply cap of 21 million units. And so, you know, yeah, humans have been working towards uncounterfeitable money for a long time. And I think Satoshi finally delivered it to us with the invention of Bitcoin. Tell us more about Satoshi. And is it important for us to understand what this represents? We don't know much about Satoshi other than his writings and his communications with a cryptography chat room that he released the Bitcoin open source software project into. I think the most important thing about Satoshi is that he disappeared. Again, back to the decentralization of Bitcoin, if there was a single guy in charge of this project, even if he was the saint of all saints, there would be someone to target, to vilify, to denigrate, to accuse of greed or to represent as a threat to the protocol. Like, can he change it? Can he do this? Can he do that? The rumors are that he holds about a million Bitcoin that have never moved. It's called the Satoshi stash. So there'd always be this risk, right? That this guy could get singled out. And it would really corrode the creation myth of Bitcoin, if you will. That is this decentralized thing that's emerged spontaneously. It would instead become largely attached to that individual. There's a lot of speculation about who he was. Some people think it was a group of these early cryptographers called the cypherpunks working together. There had been many attempts at creating money independent of the state in the decades leading up to the invention of Bitcoin. Many of those bodies of work were cited in the Bitcoin white paper by Satoshi himself. And he really, you know, he drew upon that work too. Bitcoin was essentially a composite of many of these prior accomplishments that these cypherpunks had made toward the end of creating stateless digital money, but they hadn't put the ingredients together in just the right way. And Satoshi was the first one to figure it out. So we don't know much. There is a book, I think it's called The Writings of Satoshi. And I would say that's probably reading that is the most you're ever going to know about the guy. Very polymathic. He knew a little about a lot, at least. And he pulled off inventing one of the most important innovations I think history will ever know. 
I'm glad we're having these conversations because I find that most times if I'm hearing anything about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, it's very hypey and it's very bizop oriented. And we're talking about something that's much bigger than that. And I think that's the essence of what Bitcoin has been, is designed to be. And I think it goes beyond the, you know, showing how many returns you've gotten because the thoughts that seem to remain, at least from the majority conversations that I would hear around Bitcoin would be two things that I'd love to get your opinion on is one, the amount of money someone has made or lost with Bitcoin seems to be the headline. And I also heard about the energy consumption of running the network of Bitcoin. Would you have something to share about both of these? Yeah, as far as the money people have made, you know, there's a saying in Bitcoin that everyone gets Bitcoin at the price they deserve. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a very interdisciplinary invention, right? It involves aspects of game theory, computer science, economics, physics, thermodynamics. It's a lot to get your head around to really understand Bitcoin. Actually, I would say no one fully understands Bitcoin, but to kind of grok its importance, you need to be kind of like Satoshi. You need to know a little bit about a lot. And so that's difficult for a lot of people. And some people just got lucky too, right? Like there was the early Silk Road online marketplace. People were selling drugs and you needed Bitcoin to transact in this marketplace because Bitcoin is censorship resistant. It was a, a money that was impossible to shut down. So it was very useful in these illicit marketplaces. So some people just wanted to buy weed and ended up buying some Bitcoin to go buy the weed. And they held some of the Bitcoin from 2011 onward. And you didn't need much Bitcoin to get a geometrically outsized return. I think if you held even a thousand dollars in Bitcoin in 2010, 2011 was in the hundreds of millions of dollars a decade later. So, you know, some people got lucky. Some people studied it and realized what it was, you know, the ultimate sound money, digital gold, the internet of money. We hear all these analogies thrown around, but it doesn't really matter. Like you could say things like it's not fair. He was just going to buy weed and then he had some Bitcoin and now he's rich. It's like, well, that's how the world works, guys. Like people win the lottery. There was a billionaire in China that went to take a selfie and he like fell off a cliff and died. Like things happen. You know, there's randomness out there. You could complain about the fairness, but it's not going to change reality. So your time is better spent learning about what's happening, right? Like this is a train that is moving forward. No one knows how to stop it. You can decide what you want to do about it, right? Do you want to avoid the train? Do you want to get on the train? Do you want to stand in front of the train? It's up to you. But I don't think complaining about the existence of the train is going to do much good. Again, given that no one knows how to stop it. The second part of your question was? Around the energy consumption and climate consumption for the running of the network. Yeah, so this one's especially ridiculous. When you compare it to gold mining, or you compare it to the military industrial complex, which are the energy consumptive activities that support both gold and fiat currency, Bitcoin pales in comparison. Further, there's this mistaken connection between energy consumption and pollution. Energy consumption does not equal pollution. Pollution is when you 
dump something that is unwanted into someone else's property, right? You put sewage in my river or you dump chemicals into the ocean, right? That is what we want to minimize to preserve ecological health. Energy consumption is how much energy we're actually harnessing and channeling. Energy consumption is what drives innovation and human prosperity. There's a great book on this by Matt Ridley called The Rational Optimist. And he shows the GDP per capita over all of human history, which is basically flat. And then all of a sudden, in the 1700s, around the time of the Industrial Revolution, it goes completely asymptotic vertical, right? It's just a flat line, and then it goes straight up like a rocket ship. That's because we learned to harness hydrocarbons. We learned to harness steam. Like we learned to get other sources of energy that are not human or animal and leverage them toward our own purposeful ends. And there's also a scale for this. It's called the Kardashev scale that actually directly relates how much energy humans can channel to what level of civilization they have attained. So the more energy we consume and channel as a species, the more civilized we are, the more technologically sophisticated we are, the higher our standard of living, the higher our carrying capacity, etc. So you have to draw a very bright distinction between these two things. And then there's maybe another question related to that, which is why? Why does Bitcoin use energy? And the answer quite simply is the same reason gold requires energy to produce. If gold required no energy to produce, then everyone would just produce it ad infinitum and you dilute the value storage capability, right? You would hyperinflate gold. So if there's no cost necessary to produce a new unit of money, the money tends to go into hyperinflation because anyone can produce a new unit and use it to buy things, which drives down the price of the money, which can ultimately drive it to worthlessness in hyperinflation. So what does that look like? Well, we have plenty of monies in the world that don't require any energy to produce, like fiat currency, right? Takes a lot of energy to preserve that monopoly, right? You need to have armies and guns and lawyers and politicians and all of these things to like fight to protect the exclusive right to counterfeit currency. But the money itself requires no energy to produce. And so what has happened to fiat currencies across history? All of them have hyperinflated. Every past fiat currency that's ever existed has ended in hyperinflation. The issuing country gets conquered. They monetize to a new fiat currency or the fiat currency gets hyperinflated. The only exceptions to the rule are the ones that are active today, right? Like the best performing fiat currency in history is the British pound. It's 320 some odd years old. It's lost 99.7% of its purchasing power in that time. And it's still being inflated away. So the idea... I guess the core idea here is that the integrity of a money and its ability to successfully store your economic energy or your purchasing power into the future is directly proportionate to how much energy is necessary to produce that money. And so Bitcoin has taken this principle from gold and basically applied it into a digital form that gets us into a, a bit of a complicated domain called Bitcoin mining, but that's essentially it, that you have to expend energy to secure the supply from dilution via inflation. 
And there's only one way to do that. You know, you hear again in shitcoin land, people talking about proof of stake, proof of space, proof of this, proof of that. None of that works, right? A very simple way to think about it is this. If you want to create a money that no one can counterfeit, then you have to peg it to the only thing in the universe that nobody can counterfeit, which is energy itself, right? This is the second law of thermodynamics. Energy cannot be neither created nor destroyed. So energy is uncounterfeitable. If you want uncounterfeitable money, you have to peg the monetary technology to the production of energy itself. And that's what Bitcoin has done. I want to go down this rabbit hole because of conversations I've had with you now. And I'm hoping this is going to be the same inspiration that all my listeners here are going to have because I've only scratched the surface and I feel like I've been looking in the wrong direction. And so what I want to encourage everyone is if this has piqued your curiosity in any form or fashion, which I know for me it absolutely has, then you definitely want to go check out the What Is Money podcast with Robert Breedlove. I'm enjoying this so much and it's making me really start thinking about what are things I can do to actually become more aware of how this money flows, why it's so important. I think that there's a lot of things that I understood fundamentally that didn't feel right, but the way that you're speaking about it confirms some of the doubts that I had, particularly about a lot of altcoins that are out there. And of course, I want to keep things at a basic level because it's not a familiar territory for the majority of the listeners here. But I think that at least we've opened up the door to a curiosity that you've created a beautiful channel that people can continue to go down towards. There's a question I ask everyone that comes on the podcast, but I feel like shifting it a little bit for you because you're on the Selling with Love podcast. I usually ask people what selling with love means to you, but I kind of want to ask it such as what does a money that you can love look like? And I feel like you're pointing towards Bitcoin quite strongly. Well, I get very hesitant with this idea because, you know, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so love is a very loaded word, right? It depends on which kind of love you're talking about. The Greeks had at least three words for it. They had eros, philia, and agape. Eros, where we get the word erotic, is consumptive love. You know, I want to eat the steak or eat the potato chips or, you know, lustfully devour my partner, you know, something like that. Philia is something more like family or friendship type love. You don't want to eat your family and friends. You typically want this ongoing process of reciprocal opening with them such that they get to know you more deeply so you can know them more deeply such that you can know them more deeply, like the infinite game of love in a way. And then the highest form of love, which is the one espoused in the Christian tradition, is agape, right? And that is the total unconditional selfless love you have for your newborn child, right? They're not even reciprocating really, right? They're just this inert lump when they first come into the world, yet you love them in almost a transcendental way, right? It's overwhelming. So when we talk about the love of money, I mean, I guess you could say eros is okay, right? We want to consume money. You're not really consuming it. You're spending it, but that's sort of a form of consumption. It enables consumption, but you don't want to have philia or agape for money because those are for people, right? Those forms of love are for human beings, not assets. So, you know, for me, I guess 
because talking about this stuff, you know, critics will say, oh, I'm a Bitcoin promoter. I say, I'm not really a Bitcoin promoter. What I hope to be is a promoter of human freedom. As amazing as Bitcoin is, I really think it is nothing more than a means to an end. And for me, that end is human freedom. You know, as we touched on some of this show, I view central banking as the largest criminal enterprise in human history. I don't think there's anything that's stolen more purchasing power from people. I wrote a piece on this titled Masters and Slaves of Money. You can actually quantify the the labor hours stolen through the printing of money, and the figures are staggering. It was about 1 billion human hours stolen between 1980 and 2020 by the Federal Reserve alone. That's just one central bank in one country. That's like the equivalent of enslaving close to 12 million people for 40 years straight. People get very dicey when I say that. Like, what do you mean? It's not slavery. They're not in the fields picking cotton. But it's the same principle, right? You're stealing the fruits of others' labor. In this case, it's just done in a much less visible and therefore more insidious fashion. And at a much larger scale, actually, when you compared those numbers to the transatlantic slave trade, it was four to five times more labor hours stolen per year than the transatlantic slave trade. So that is really bad for the human enterprise. This idea of systemic theft and all of the deception and warfare that needs to exist to preserve this centralized privilege. And Bitcoin is just the counterforce to that entire movement. It's a, it's a humanitarian movement. It is an ethical imperative. It is something that actually changes the landscape of incentives that we inhabit such that it induces, let's say it makes non-productive and political actions less profitable. So therefore, it induces people to be more productive and less political do we need more of that in the world? I mean, <laughs> I could use a few less talking heads and a few more, you know, hardworking hands, I think, in the world. And I think we all could. The more we work and the more we produce, the more our standard of living increases, the less we have to work to make ends meet, the better the world becomes, the more civilization advances. So that's what it comes down to for me. I think the more we optimize for human freedom, specifically in the preservation of the foundational principles of Western civilization, which are life, liberty, and property, the better the world becomes. And I think Bitcoin is the ultimate means to that end of human freedom. Robert, it has been an absolute pleasure having a conversation with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. For everybody tuning in, it was one of the most important episodes. We didn't speak particularly about selling, but we talked about freedom. We talked about understanding money a little more. And like I said, I'm hoping your curiosity has been opened I'm going to be going down the rabbit hole, and I'm glad that we have people like Robert out there bringing us these kinds of information so that we can start making better decisions without just listening to what's being echoed by the same places that, you know, are benefiting from that information being shared to us. So really, really enjoyed this, Robert. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. I did as well. Thank you for having me again. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. 
hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.